Hello and welcome to the Emotion at Work podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition by having conversations you wouldn't necessarily expect. Now welcome to this um, episode which is a special edition. Uh, It's one where I want to go back and revisit previous episodes that we've had and I want to look at what how do they compare, how do they contrast, what overlaps or similarities are there between them. Um, Because I think often on this podcast we talk about particular terminology or um, or topics that actually would really value or no not value benefit from wider a wider view and a wider exploration which isn't necessarily always possible in the conversations that I have with each guest as I go so for this one then we're picking up on the 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 term or the theme of emotions and or emotional intelligence so to do that we're delving back into four previous episodes we're going way back to the beginning back to episode two where sarah jane lenny came onto the podcast to talk about emotional inauthenticity we're also going to episode 25 where cliff lansley came on to talk about the world of emotional intelligence Then we've got Joe Wainwright in episode 26 talking about emotional exploitation and we've got James Gross from episode 27. And what I've got done is gone back through each of those episodes and looked for particular aspects that I think are really interesting to pull out. And I've deliberately put this podcast together as food for thought, as an opportunity for... um, for you to challenge or further your thinking. So there's no episode, there are no episodes, there's no answers to come in the course of this episode. And um, what you will get though is uh, challenging of your thinking. So we're going to go first then into episode 25 with Cliff. Uh, and I, I want to look at the definition of emotion or emotions, um, because I've tried to define them in a couple of different occasions with two different guests. So Let's start with Cliff then, and this is towards the beginning of the podcast where I ask him to define emotions for me. I don't think there is a wide acceptance of a single definition of emotion, mm-hmm. but what I think features in most definitions <coughs> that get accepted and support from, from most is the fact that it's a process. So an emotion is a process. It happens to us. It's mm-hmm. not something we choose. And um, uh, it helps us to deal with matters of importance to our welfare without thinking. And uh, that little cluster mm. uh, is important. So it's, it's what matters to us uh, because uh, part of uh, emotion and the way we react and respond to stimulant, uh, stimulus triggers is designed to either save our life, um, enrich our life, mm. develop relationships or to motivate action. And uh, that's evolved. Uh, some of that has uh, is evolved. So that our primates share the same emotions. And um, they, if we didn't have those, and we just relied on conscious thought, mm-hmm. uh, we probably wouldn't survive uh, to be the uh, well, 59 plus years that I'd managed to make riding difficult motorbikes. Yeah, yeah. So if I'm riding a motorcycle, we had a couple of incidents where um, vehicles and animals come onto the tracks. Mm. And uh, thinking and training doesn't come into this. It's just an object coming into sight, triggers a response of uh, threat. And, uh, and then the uh, fear of harm from that, uh, it makes you move away from the object. Yeah. And working out the vectors of the speed and the size of the animal or the vehicle coming from uh, your peripheral vision mm. and working out whether you're going fast enough, slow enough uh, to make that. Uh, all that happens in a flash. And so the swerve of the handlebars, uh, the avoidance of the uh, of the object seems to be uh, happening much of our time without thought. 
All right. So what we've got there from Cliff is him outlining that it's a process and that is something that happens to us. Now, the other episode that I asked our guest to define emotions in was with James Gross on um, episode 27. Um, and him and Cliff uh, articulate it in a similar but also slightly different way. So let's head straight over to the episode with James then where I ask him to define what emotions are. I don't think we have a great answer to that. Uh, that this is something that's currently debated in the field. To, you know, I would say an emotion is sort of a multi-part response to situations that we perceive as being important and relevant to our goals. And when I say a multi-part response, that's just a fancy way of saying that that response has a behavioral component. So we're more likely to do some things than others in that situation. Mm -hmm. It also has an experiential component. In other words, it feels like something to be in an emotional state. Uh, and, uh, there's also a physiological uh, component to the response so that we, our bodies respond in particular ways. Okay. So, so it's got those different aspects and different components then. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So, so we're talking about, you know, the, the, and the labels we give these, you know, sort of multi-part responses to situations that we see as important to us. Uh, you know, we give them labels like fear and anger and sadness and so forth. And these mm -hmm. and, and the debates, you know, in the field have been around, you know, how tightly coupled are these different aspects? So do I always feel something when I'm in an emotional state or could I have an emotion and not really in the moment be aware of it? So there are a lot of debates about it, but I think it's a common sense sort of way of thinking about emotions that says emotions are more than just a feeling. So it's the it's the feeling plus the behavioral response mm -hmm. plus the physiological changes, the heart rate changes, the sweating in your palms, the respiratory changes. That whole package is what we kind of mean by emotions. Mm -hmm. um, so that's our starting point, I think, for most people today. And, and there are a lot of debates. Are they universal? Does everyone everywhere have exactly the same emotions? I think the answer is no. Are there some important similarities? I think the answer is yes. Uh, are the how do the how does the brain generate these emotions? Uh, huge debates about the brain bases of fear and anger and sadness. But I mm -hmm. think if I think if you ask people in the field or even outside the field, kind of what's the basic common sense definition of emotion? They'd say something like what I said: sort of this multi-part response plays out over seconds to minutes. It has to do with helping you position yourself with respect to an important situation, given your goals at the moment. And uh, sometimes that positioning is helpful for you, given your goals. And sometimes the way you respond in an emotion is not helpful. And that brings us back to this whole issue of, well, what would you do? How do you regulate this so-called emotion if it turns out that it's not really being helpful to you? Your anger your physiology, your behavioral response where you really feel like hitting somebody, that may not at all be in line with your goals to be a good parent to a young child who's really frustrating you. And in that, mm -hmm. in that circumstance, that package, that multi-part package of anger, uh, we would feel in the moment we might think, this is not the way I want to be with my child. And so at that moment, we would decide 
this package of anger is not what I want. It's not helpful given my goals. And so I'm going to try to do something about it. And that's what brings us to emotion regulation. So one of the things that uh, interests me from James's definition is this multi-part response aspect that he talks about. And that links back into what um, Cliff was say, kind of articulating in his process. So this, the, this idea that there is a multi-part response where you have the, you know, the physical, um, the, what's the word I'm looking for, the physiological responses um, and those other aspects that James talks about as well. Um, James doesn't quite articulate it as a process. He just says there's different parts of it. But you can see or you can hear, sorry, the the, the similarities with some of the aspects that both Cliff and James are talking about. But one of the other things that James brings in is this idea of goals. So depending on what it is that you want to achieve, um, he brings in. And for me, that is a really interesting aspect. And one I'll come back to later because um, it's something that... Uh, Cliff again refers to but in, when he's defining something different to emotions when actually when he's defining uh, emotional intelligence is when he brings the ideas of goals in um, but that multi-part response aspect is tricky and this process aspect is tricky because if we think about the classic kind of popular, popularized Daniel Goleman two by two definition of emotional intelligence i mean we'll come on to other people's definitions but if we look at the classic two by two which was the self-awareness and self-management and then awareness of others and management of others or others management then if what cliff talks about in terms of the emotions being a a, a process beyond consciousness they happen to us then where does awareness kick in you know, where, where down that process, where down that timeline can our awareness as individuals or can our awareness of those, the, that emotion or, or those emotions, where can they come in? And likewise, um, with that multi-part response, there are, the, the, you know, can you stop those physiological changes happening, those changes in your heart rate or your respiratory rate or the, the release of particular chemicals into your, uh, into your system? So where, where can that awareness come from or where does that uh, awareness kick in? Because, and this is one of the soapboxes I get on during one of the episodes, my, my challenge is the term self-awareness is, I think, often used as a throwaway term to suggest that it's something that is easy to do, or actually it's something that's really, really hard to do, to become aware of uh, how you're feeling, what's made you feel that way, um, how you can work with that feeling in that particular moment or in that particular context that you're in. So if I think about um, those moments, then as James talked about, with you know he defines emotions as lasting um, seconds to minutes. It's not something that kind of sticks around with you all day. And and what James's area of research in particular is in is the way that we regulate those emotions. And I mean, I I have. I guess challenges being being the linguist that I am. You know, when people talk about managing your emotions, I can't think of anybody or anything that likes being managed. Um, so I, I tend to, to reframe it or rephrase it as working with our emotions. Um, and 
and James's term then is regulating those emotions. So it's not about having to to manage them. It's about thinking, well, how do we work with those in the uh, in light of the goals that we have um, within it? So let's head back to James then. So what he's going to do now is to go into his research more specifically, talking about the different families of uh, emotion regulation. And what I want you to listen out for as you hear this bit is think back to the definition that that Cliff articulated earlier of of that process and then think how might these families that James is about to explain, how might those families map across that um, process model that uh, Cliff outlined earlier on? Yeah, so I think, you know, emotions, uh, as we've discussed, are these multi-componential or multi-part responses that play out over time. And emotion regulation, simply put, is just activating a goal to try to modify one or more aspects of emotion, the experiential part, the behavioral part, the physiological part of the whole package. And so you may be trying to turn it up. You may be trying to turn it down. Uh, Any of that counts. As long as you have a goal in the moment to try to modify one or more aspects of an emotion, that is emotion regulation. Okay. And, and your your research suggests that there are a number of different families of emotion regulation. That, that's right. Um, do you want to outline what those are? I'd be happy to, Phil. Yeah, so, um, uh, you know, from my perspective and thinking about how people might go about regulating emotions, it's helpful to ask a prior question, which is, mm. well, if, if, if emotions unfold over time and have these different parts, how do we think about how they unfold and how they are generated? And let's do this in a really simple way. And so we found it helpful to think, well, there's some situational features or some aspects of a situation that we uh, tend to uh, rather than other aspects of that situation. Okay. And then once we've, once we've attended to those aspects of the situation, we then think about them in particular ways. And it's this combination of being in the right kind of situation, attending to it, and then thinking about those aspects of the situation that we're attending to that leads to this multi-componential response. And if we use that very, very simple idea about emotions playing out in certain situations, when we attend to certain features, and then think about it in, in particular ways, we can then use that very simple cartoon for how emotions get generated to make some distinctions. And so these are the families of emotion regulation processes that we and other people have been interested in studying. And so if you start at the front end, let's take a a situation where, again, going back to a family context, but you can take a work context. So let's say it's a child, but it could also be a coworker Mm -hmm. in a particular situation who's doing something that you find annoying that you really would prefer they not do. So that's a situation and you notice your child, you know, uh, using horrible table manners. You notice your coworker playing music without earbuds in a way that's obviously going to distract you and other people around him or her. Mm-hmm. A- and that's a situation. You then attend to it. You pay attention to it. Now, if you were totally distracted uh, and you didn't even notice your child's bad behavior or your coworker's inconsiderate behavior you wouldn't have an emotional response because you wouldn't even attend to it. But if you do attend to it, you then might have uh, the beginnings of an emotional response. But what's crucial 
is it's not just the situation and your attention to it, it's how you think about it. So if you think, as a parent, my child is willfully misbehaving and trying to get me angry and is just not amounting to the kind of person I want them to be, that can elicit anger and frustration. Uh, but if you have a different thought, if you think he's just playing around, he's had a really stressful week, I, I really, you know, it's great that he has some spunk and he's not just bending over and kind of doing all the things that we want him to do. Good for him. That's a completely different response and you have a very different kind of emotion. And so mm. for me, for me, just sort of noticing that it's a situation that you have to attend to and then think about in particular ways that gets the emotion going tells me that, well, one, one way to fix or change or modify or regulate an emotion is what we call situational. So it's situation selection or situation modification. What does that mean? That's just a fancy way of saying, look, as people who can plan, plan their lives, we can make decisions about which situations we're likely to encounter. We can avoid people we know are going to be toxic. We can seek out people we know we're going to like to be with. And the situational selection or situation modification, that's where you change a situation in a way that enhances the emotional impact. Those are very early uh, types of emotion regulation. They're so-called situational strategies. A second family, Phil, would come at the next step, at the, attention, okay. at the attentional step. So now let's say we're in a situation, we haven't selected the right situation, or you know, it's a situation snuck up on us. Now we're focused on attentional forms of emotional regulation, asking how can we modify our attention for example, distracting ourselves uh, or really focusing on something else mm -hmm. in a way that would modify the downstream emotion that we would otherwise have. That's the second family. So we have situational strategies, attentional strategies. The third family of strategies have to do with cognitive change. And that's where we are focusing on the thought process and we're trying to say, okay, normally I'd think about this let's say as a coworker being very inconsiderate, willfully trying to, you know, irritate uh, all the rest of us in the office. Uh, yeah. But I might say, again, I might cut him some slack and say, look, maybe he doesn't know that he, you know, is way too loud for the rest of us. Maybe this is, is just ignorance. Maybe he's just a little bit clueless. He's obviously new to the job. He doesn't really know the rules here. Maybe he's not trying to piss us all off. Maybe he's just clueless. And that new way of thinking about it suggests new action. So instead of getting all pissed off, I'll just say something politely. You know, would you mind using earbuds? I'm trying to, you know, take a phone call. And that co mm -hmm. cognitive change really can totally affect your downstream emotions. And then the fourth family, Phil, is all the way at the end of the line. Let's say you haven't been able to do situational strategies or attentional strategies or even cognitive change strategies you can still do what we call response modulation. And that's where you have, you know you have an emotion, it's starting to come up, you're starting to get angry, starting to get frustrated. But there, what you try to do is you just try to manage the actual behavioral output, for example, so that you would try not to look upset or angry in front of your child or coworker. You still feel angry or upset, but you just try to manage or suppress that emotional output. And those are the okay. those are the major families, and you can see what we're doing. We're just saying, okay, how do you how do how does emotion get generated? 
in a situation, you attend to it, you think about it, and that leads to this set of uh, responses that we call emotion. And all I'm saying is this so-called process model of emotion regulation just says, well, let's just target each of those major steps in emotion generation. We can target the situation and try to change it. We can target the attention and try to change it. Target the cognitions and try to change those. Or we can target the actual responses themselves. And those are the four families of emotion regulation processes. So I asked you to think about um, or to listen out for uh, how Cliff's definition of a process might fit over those four emotion regulation families that um, that James has outlined there. I also want then to go back to my point about awareness and that self-awareness aspect earlier on. Because if you think about the, the first family that um, James articulates, which is the situational one. So for me, this is something that actually, especially the situational selection one, it's something that c- could be, occur within awareness or it could occur outside of awareness. So if I think about um, one of my colleagues in the past, um, she witnessed a car crash and she made a decision. And I don't know whether it was conscious or not, but I remember her talking about how she didn't want to drive down that road again. And she drove a different route to work. And that is a really good example for me of that situational selection aspect i don't want to put myself in a situation where i believe that emotion will be triggered as so therefore i will choose not to play now that might be within awareness it might be that you the individuals can choose to go you know what that person they whenever i see them they do these things or i feel this way or they have this approach or they have this effect on me and therefore i'm going to choose not to do it Or you might just choose not to do it, but that could be outside of awareness. And I think that is a real big challenge for us as um, individuals and practitioners in terms of what is happening inside and outside of awareness. Um, One of the things that we'll come on to later with uh, Jo Wainwright when we talk about her views of emotional exploitation is the extent to which certain things are okay or allowed in the workplace. And that if for things to become more in your awareness involves greater reflection or reflective practice it involves um self-critique self-review it involves engaging or ascertaining views and opinions and perspectives and perceptions from other people all of which can be really really hard to do partly because they can be time consuming partly because they can be um they can challenge us and we can find, you know, we, we might put ourselves at risk or make ourselves vulnerable uh, in that way. So, and I guess this links back to my point about self-awareness being hard in terms of, um, it's, yes, it's, it's a very easy to throw away two-word term, but actually is really tricky to do. So if we then think about some of... Um, his other aspects then. So I think he talks about the attentional family. Um, and then he also talks about the uh, response modulation family. And again, where do they sit and how do they sit with awareness? Now, it might be that something happens that has happened to you before, in which case you can apply some attentional deployment or some cognitive reframe or some cognitive changing aspects to to thinking about something differently. But if it's a new novel experience, then that might only leave you with that 
response modulation aspect. So I think if we go back to, to try and link these two definitions together, part of me wonders if the situational aspects, if you're doing them with awareness, they actually sit before what Cliff was outlining in his articulation of emotions, where there is a, a stimulus or a trigger that then goes into a database that um, associates it with a particular feeling and then creates the appropriate physiological um, changes or responses to deal with whatever emotion we um, or to deal with whatever situation we might be in at that particular point in time and then the attentional aspects or the cognitive changes or the response modulation um, categories that James starts talking about do they fit after that emotion has been um, triggered or and or do we have multiple emotions running at the same time? You know, is the fact that we, if I think about a situation that I want to avoid doing, does have I, have I got an emotion running from the memory or from the imagined situation that I would be in and then I'm making choices to avoid it happening? And, and I, I said at the beginning I wasn't going to give any answers and I'm posing questions and, and that's what this is really. This is me posing that question to you, fair listener, around when and how do the emotions occur and what makes them occur is it just stimulus that happens outside or external stimuli to us can it happen from within from memories from dreams from imagination and all of those things as well by the way i think the answer is yes to all of those but that's my um that's my personal view all right so we've got two similar but slightly differing views on uh, emotion and we've defined emotions and we've defined emotion regulation. Um, and the study, though, is, is broader than that. So what I want to go back next, then, is to Sarah Jane Lenning. Let's go back to SJ from episode two. And she, her topic was talking about emotional inauthenticity. Now, Sarah Jane Lenning works at Greater Manchester Police, and this is part of her, her master's. And I know she's gone on to do a PhD research into the impact of emotional inauthenticity on the police. So... One of the key aspects that sits on that sits behind emotional inauthenticity is this idea of emotional labour, which comes from a an author called Ali Rothschild. So, what I wanted to do with SJ then was to to sort of de- not sort of I wanted to define what that is. So that's where we're going to pick up the conversation. We're going to p- pick it up at defining what is emotional labour. Um, what I mean stems, and I, I will always t- come back talk from two perspectives, my mm. personal experience um, and my research and academic angle. So when I talk about emotional inauthenticity, I'm reflecting on how as a employee in the organisation, as a police officer, I know that I hid my emotions and almost to extend I hid my personality, my sensitivity to um, traumatic incidents and how I empathised with people. Um, and it also spans from um, my research, and I focus on emotional labour, which is part of my title. And that looks, emotional labour um, is a construct from Marley Hothschild, developed in 1983. And she identified feeling rules, which have been more latterly um, developed into display rules. Mm-hmm. And these are implied rules around um, what the organisation expects as part of an unwritten contract that you will display 
Um, so she was looking at flight attendants. She was, they, they were expected to always be happy, and um, despite what was said with them and what they were dealing with, they were going to be happy and you know, the customers always writing with a smile on their faces. And they suffered quite a bit with this. Um, so the authenticity comes from that, my own experience of actually hiding my emotions. Mm. And um, the research that looks about how we we are expected to on behalf of the organisation and how the devices that we employ to hide those emotions, so like surface acting and deep acting are the two devices that Arlie Hosschild um, talks about. And that's how I explore how we fake emotions and what emotions we deal with and suppress within policing mm. through the concept of acting and deep acting and emotional reg- regulation and dissonance. So, so emotional labour then, um, mm-hmm. is, is, that, is that the... the is that the process that happens like inside people? So that's what they, what individuals do within themselves. To, well, it, to, or, it's, or, sorry, go on. it's two things. So sorry, <laughs> getting over excited now. <laughs> um, it's, it's two things. So as I was, I was quite alluding to, as I was really motivating how long my answer was, um, is employers as such have um, two options of how to engage with the feeling rules. And this is what makes up the emotional labour. So the first I said was surface acting, and this is where this is is an external display of the um, emotion. So saying being happy, you can be display happiness, smile, open gestures, eye contact, where internally you can still feel saying you're having a bad day, or maybe you're depressed, but you're hiding this by faking and acting out, actioning out what people would normally expect as a happy emotion, Mm -hmm. so you may not feel it. Then there's deep acting. And this is where um, employees can try and modify modify their internal emotion, try and manipulate their feelings so they actually are in line with the requirements. Um, This is really interesting in the scope of police work because a lot of the previous research hasn't focused on police work and says that, you know, internal regulations of deep acting can actually be helpful for well-being and mental health. That all depends on which emotion you're internally regulating. Okay. So if you're a police officer and you're trying to internally regulate empathy for somebody that's significantly stressed, talk about uh, rape victims or the family of somebody that's died in tragic circumstances, it can be quite distressing. So the emotional labour is how we choose to um, comply with the feeling and display rules. And it's so complicated depending on the emotion and how you engage with them as to what impact that can have on you psychologically. Regular listeners to the podcast and all those familiar with my work will know that I've got a big beaming smile on my face right now because SJ's brought in uh, that wonderful thing that I call context. Now, um, she's not the only one to mention it, actually. Um, So we'll come back to context in a bit more detail later on. Where I wanted to to go or to what I wanted to think about next then is if we we go back to James Gross and his his families of um, emotion regulation then, when SJ's dis- describing the situation that happens within, within her, sorry, when SJ's describing the situations that she's found either within her own practice or within her research, they all seem to be around that either response modulation and or cognitive change aspect. So either it's the repressing or suppressing 
of the particular emotions that um, individuals may be experiencing. So they may be scared, they may be, you know, police officers may be scared at the situation, they may be sad about something that's happened, they may be angry about something that's happened, but they have to 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 push all of that down or, or push all of that away. And what SJ is describing is, is that that's what happens, that those emotions get pushed down or they get pushed away and they, they don't get explored um, or worked with in any way. And there are no... Um, structures or mechanisms within place within the police that allow for the officers to do that and that's how she links it then into that emotional inauthenticity that what's happening is is officers are, are having to display and portray emotions that they may not actually be experiencing and and this then challenges the some of the narrative that we talked about earlier on so if cliff's definition is that emotions are unbidden and they happen to us if there are stimulus or stimuli that, that make those emotions happen. How do we explain the feelings that those police officers may be having when they are um, when they're in the workplace and not and not able to? Because there's two aspects here. Really. There's one which is not able to to show and not able to express the emotion, and there's a second aspect then, which is this emotional inauthenticity, which is displaying or showing something different. And elsewhere in the podcast, SJ talks about how you, the the main credible emotion is anger and how even if you're scared, you have to turn that into anger. And and that that transition then of moving it from one emotion to another, how does that fit with the emotion regulation aspects then that James is talking about? Uh, is this is this emotion regulation where it is response modulation where I'm, I'm modulating my response my fear response down and then putting in an anger response or is the anger actually a secondary is it a secondary experience of emotion is it that I feel scared I then remember that I'm not allowed to be scared and I've got to be angry instead so I then create the 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 responses that I need to display that anger now, if that emotion is performed or feigned, is it a true emotion then? Or does it even matter? You know, is it... And, and this emotional inauthenticity aspect then, if, I've, if I'm performing emotions, where does the energy for that come from? How do I, how do I go about doing that? How does that affect me? Um, you know, SJ's talking about the, the impact it has on physical health, mental health, um, both at home and at work and, and relationships too. So how does um I'm I'm pausing because I'm I'm worried that I'm kind of ranting and just asking lots of questions and, and I'm trying to caution myself to think is that a helpful thing to do? I said I wanted this podcast to be about posing questions and not giving answers, so I guess I've given myself permission to just ask lots of questions. Um, and, and I guess I'd encourage you then to think about, well, how, how does that translate for you in your workplaces or your work lives or your family lives even? Are there particular times where you, you can't say things or you can't express things? And, and how does that emotional inauthenticity affect you? And would it be okay to be truly emotionally authentic? You know, the... One, one, a researcher that is often quoted or, or cited around the emotion field is, is that of Brené Brown and her work on vulnerability. Now, e even in her 
work. She articulates how that she, what she 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 says. I'm not advocating for uncensored vulnerability, and and therefore I'm also not advocating for uncensored emotional expression. <clears throat> what I'm posing is questions about the the are emotions un, truly unbidden in that way. How and, and where do we go about, how do we go about and where, when do we do, oh, try again. How do we go about and when do we perform emotions and how do those things kind of overlap and um, and interrelate? So if I, if I link it back then to James's multi-part process for a moment. So what SJ was articulating in her um, section then was that the those those emotions are the, the physiological changes are still happening with those emotions and they are but they have nowhere to go and they're manipulated into other feelings and they also then doing end up doing harm with burnout etc. And if you want to know more about burnout, then I will signpost you to episode 17, where I talked to Amy King about um, her experiences with burnout. But also now we need then to think about other people, because what Sarah Jane uh, has brought in here is this, the idea that it's not just about the individual, it's not just about the individual officer, it's about their families, it's about their friends, it's about their superior officers. And this links us back in then to, you know, the classic kind of Golmany look at um, emotions with that that self-awareness, manage, um, self-management, awareness of others, management of others type aspects. So where I want to go next then is to, to bring our final guest in who we haven't heard from yet, which is Joe Wainwright. And um, I'm bringing Joe in now because the 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 work that uh, SJ just talked about in the experiences that individuals are having in the context that she talks about is quite different from some of the experiences that Joe has had and Joe talks about this idea of uh, emotional exploitation and I'll, I'll let her um, tell you what that means because she articulates it much much better uh, than I will so let's hand over to Joe and then we'll come back these are just my definitions, so I'm happy for yeah, no, that's you fine. to yeah, disagree fine. and other people to disagree. But I think emotional work is quite simply when work is emotional. So there are environments where work evokes emotion. And there are environments yep. where, as I mentioned earlier, that's quite relative for people. So... It's Yeah, it's about individual experience, but we might say that people will get more emotional, they're more likely to be emotionally triggered in environments where they are talking about or um, observing or exposed to things like domestic violence and suicide and people dying and those kind of situations. Okay. And we might also think people do... So any work that triggers emotion and we might also say that emotional work is when organizations want people to come to work intrinsically motivated so they want people to come to work and be motivated by the purpose of the work okay and align themselves to the values so it's does that make sense it does 
And then I believe that emotional labour is when people are paid to do emotion work and to manage their own emotions. So part of their contractual agreement and what they are paid for is to be self-aware, self-knowing, to understand and recognise their own emotions, to manage them effectively so that they have choice and control in the behaviour that they exhibit. And if you think about a counselling situation or a, um, a coaching situation or an addiction treatment situation, that is the work. Emotional labour is being able to sit and provide a service for someone even though you might not feel like the things that they have done as a person are, are great. So it's about managing your emotions and how you feel about the things that you're going to come across. So you have it in that context. We also have it in a context where people expect people that they've employed to have a smile on their face mm-hmm. or to yeah, be nice and be kind and do emotional labour so that they don't shout at somebody in a meeting. So again, spectrums, there's different um, levels of how much emotional labour we have to do. And, the, and emotional labour is also the work that we do within our own selves and within our own thinking and our mind and our physiology to present ourselves behaviourally and visually in the right way so that we're communicating what we intend to communicate and our emotions aren't leaking out or slipping out or interrupting what we're trying to do and making us ineffective. And while we're there, (laughs) I think emotional exploitation is when you ask someone to do emotional labour within the context of emotional work, but you don't provide the resources for them to be able to do that effectively and safely. So where you're not providing the hard hats, the high-vis jackets and and the things that you need to keep you safe. Absolutely, yeah. Where you've got people motivated by the purpose of the work that they do and not the money and not the conditions and not the perks. And when you manage people in that way, it's very easy to to do implicit or explicit demands for more and better. Like maximising on their emotional commitment to the work. Yeah. And then we easily, when people are in those situations, can exploit themselves. So things like, I know we're, we're, sta- we're two staff members down this week, but this, this new case has just come in and this has happened to them and this has happened to them and I really need somebody to do it. So emotionally tugging things. Yeah. Um, and no one's going to go, I'm too busy to pick that up, so that person's just going to have to stay in that dire situation for another week. They're going to go, yeah, I will make time, I will stay later, I will come in at the weekend. You see, I, 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 I know you're talking about spectrums, and you caveated it by saying it's relative, but I think that same strategy is used in in every in uh, uh, so I, I nearly said everyday work situations and then I caught myself but I've said it now so I'll go with it. <laughs> so if if I if I change that example from um, this person is in you know physical or um, 
um, you know, psychological uh, trauma. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they need help with two people down. So, you know, who's going to pick up this work? If I if I change that slightly to be, this client has demanded that we deliver this work this week. I know we're two people down, but if we don't deliver, the client's going to be unhappy. And then the implication is if the client's unhappy, the client's not going to pay. And if the client doesn't pay, we've not got any revenue. If we've not got any revenue, then you've not got a job. And if you've not got a job, you can't provide for yourself or your family. Yeah. Um, and if you can't provide, you know, so, so even though I, I know you're saying that there's a spectrum, I, I think even just in that example, you could easily change the service user is in dire need to the client wants this or this person has asked for this or we've promised to deliver X or we've committed to deliver Y or um, you know, yeah. the business is expecting us to launch Z or whatever that is. Um, and, and there's that, that expectation for, for people to pick up that work, which will then have emotional demands on them. Yeah. I, I don't think it's that different. Or am I talking out my ass? <laughs> Neither. Um, I think it. Um, I think it's different based on the individual's reasons for coming to work, and I think there are a lot of. Um, I can generalise like sectors or um, charities, for example, where. Yes, people need money. People come to work because they need money and that's a baseline need. And if it's not there and if it's not enough, then it becomes a a stronger driver. And also at the same time, the majority of the reason people come to work is about the purpose. And yeah, that can be exactly the same for whatever work you do. Um, My sister gets very enthusiastic and purposeful about her work. Um, and I and I love that about her. And at one stage, she was working for a paper recycling company, and um, okay. she's done a lot of work in systems and IT. And she gets really passionate about the purposefulness of it, which I, as her younger sister, frequently take the mick out of. But I do see that. I guess that's the point. What what business leader wouldn't want their people coming to work? enthusiastically driven about the purpose of what that organisation is fulfilling. Yeah. And, and and that's a lot of the narrative though, isn't it? If you think about the popularity of, um, of Simon Sinek and, and his work, you think about the... Um, uh, um, Victor Frankl and his, um, his book, The Purpose of... No, is it... Man and something, One something man and meaning. Search for meaning. That's it. Um, and if you think about a lot of the narrative, and not as much as I as I don't ascribe to the gen, to the um, to the uh, what am I look, what word am I looking for? The generalizations by demographic, by age demographic, so millennials and Gen Xs and all of that jazz. As much as I don't ascribe to that. Um, what I do see very commonly in the workplace is organisations that are aiming to articulate their reason for being beyond we want to make profit. Yeah. You know, so it's not just about we want to make as much money for the shareholders or as much money for the directors or as much money as possible. It's about we are do- we are also doing it for this reason. 
Um, and the and the aim then is to try and get people to be, as you said earlier on, intrinsically motivated to come to work. Mm. You know, to be intrinsically motivated to, um, uh, to to be in the workplace. Mm. And and what that is then doing is it's it's creating an you're creating an emotional connection. So the moment somebody is feel they feel connected to the business, you are making an emotional connection, and therefore people are doing emotional work, and they will do emotional labour. So Absolutely. in terms of your 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 definitions earlier on, I I agree with you. So emotional labour is the is the work I have to do to perform my job. So this is where an organisation says, right, our values are um, be positive, be honest, yeah. be supportive be collaborative yeah you know so they, they, they what the organization is saying is these are the these are the behaviors and therefore the associated emotions that we need so for example if i tell you that i'm not going to deliver the work that you've asked me to deliver because i think it's a waste of effort and energy and it's not a project that i want to do you they could say well hang on a minute our, our our value is be collaborative and you're not being collaborative you're yeah. you're you're you know you're not you're not working with me so i then have to do some emotional labor so i have to find a way of telling you that i'm not going to do what you want me to do and still be upholding of the company values that are, are written on a wall and so on and so forth yeah. um and then at the same time i've got to do some emotion work where i have to to work with and and, and you know, regulate the how I feel about my work, my colleagues, myself, my workplace, my team, and all of those sorts of things as well. Um, and I agree with you in that what then happens is if you display emotion that doesn't fit with what the organization wants you to portray, there is no way or means of dealing with that in the workplace. You might be able to you might you know you might find ways of dealing with that outside of work or you might find ways of dealing with that yourself but there is the the opportunity to sit down and say you know what i am really annoyed today mm. i am really upset today mm. i am really anxious today because those aren't things that organizations say they want Absolutely. they say they want people that are happy or positive or you know whatever Can that might do be attitude yeah, or or or, or um, what's the other time every day? This is how we yeah. are. Yeah, which isn't humanly like, possible. I really like Joe's metaphor um, of hard hats and high vis jackets and appropriate footwear as a way to to get us thinking about um, the requirements of us as individuals, as managers, as employers, as organisations to um, to think about the emotional and mental health and safety of people within the workplace now if i link this back to to james's emotional regulation families that he talked about earlier on so both with his work and i think with what joe's talking about here they've taken a very individual centered focus to it so how do i as an individual work with my um, emotions how do i regulate my emotions and so any of those families then that James talked about earlier on, whether it be the situational, the attentional, the cognitive, or the um, response modulation families, any any actions that we take within those for an individual are available for us in the workplace. I think what Joe's talking about, though, is this idea of how do we as 
individuals, managers, organisations, and so on. How do we equip and support other people with regulating their emotions? How do we provide the opportunities to do that? And by not doing so, that puts all of the onus back on the individual. And if I then link it back to Sarah Jane's work and thinking about, well, what emotions are appropriate or can be displayed in particular contexts, then it may be that actually what we're encouraging in the workplace is is for most people or the experiences that people have need to need to be worked with in a response modulation way. And in particular, if we think about Sarah Jane's examples, and it's not just about SJ's examples, though, for me, you know, I see this in, in, in many, many other workplaces that I work with. The the fact that we need to not show how we feel sits in that in that response modulation. And in particular, it sits within the subs, within the suppression kind of subfamily of it. And this was one of the areas that I asked James about when I inter- when I interviewed him for the podcast. So we're going to go back to James now. And we're going to talk about the some of the what the research tells us about using response modulation and suppression in particular versus a different approach. In this example, we're going to talk about a cognitive change or a cognitive reframe. Um, I think uh, the, the, the punchline here is that uh, not just my lab, but now hundreds of labs around the world have been exploring this issue because emotions are so important to our lives. We really want to know how to make the most of them. And people have been really excited. And I think you know this, but just to kind of share this with your listeners, they're, yeah, they're now, you know, literally every year, tens of thousands of papers uh, on emotion regulation, trying to understand these processes. So it's been a really, really exciting period in the past couple of decades as people have really dug in and tried to figure out some of these questions that we're addressing today. I think um, the my starting point was a very simple idea. So in this process model of emotion regulation that we just talked about with these four basic strategies, um, mm-hmm. my thought was a simple one, which was if you can catch something early on so that you can at the very beginning, where you're deciding what situation to get exposed to or how to modify a situation, that seems seemed to me like a higher leverage position to be in than all the way at the end uh, of the cycle, these response modulation strategies. So we made the prediction, very simple prediction, that the earlier you go in general in this so-called uh, process model, the more uh, effective the strategies would be. And so to start out our research now several decades ago, what we did is we compared the cognitive strategies with the response modulation strategies. And in, partic- mm-hmm. in particular, what we did is we looked at one form of cognitive change, which we call reappraisal. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a second. And we contrasted okay. reappraisal with one form of response modulation, which we called expressive suppression. Uh, and so we wanted to take two specific strategies that we knew people used in real life. The reappraisal is where you try to think differently about, in the example I gave a moment ago, your kid's misbehavior at the dinner table or your, your colleague's thought, thoughtless playing loud music or talking in a loud way at the next cubicle over. And reappraisal just is, can I change the way I would naturally think about this in a way that would make me feel better? So that's reappraisal. And it's cognitive change because it involves changing the cognitions that are 
the engine for making you feel a certain emotion. And we contrasted reappraisal, this type of cognitive change, with mm -hmm. expressive suppression, which is a type of response modulation. And that's where you just try to sh not show what you're feeling so that someone who's watching you might not know you're feeling anything at all. And so what we did, Phil, in these early studies is that we brought our participants into the laboratory and we then elicited emotion. We made them emotional by showing them short film clips that we had in other studies pre-tested to make sure that they generally make people emotional. Okay. And so we showed them some short film clips and we randomly assigned participants either to just watch the films. That was our control condition. So they just did what they, whatever they wanted, just responded naturally. Or we randomly assigned our participants to try to reappraise or to think differently in a way that would make them feel calmer. That was our reappraisal condition. Or we, okay. we randomly assigned them to expressive suppression. That is to say, just act in a way so that someone watching you wouldn't know you were feeling anything at all. And what we found, Phil, from that study and what people have replicated again and again and again is that the people in the suppression condition, so that's the response modulation, end of the line condition, they were able to look, look cool. They suppressed their behavior as we had asked them to, but that didn't help them feel better at all. The inside, their experience was just as intense as it would have been if they didn't suppress at all so it didn't help them feel cool and yeah. physiologically and this is the key point they had not just the same response as if they weren't regulating they had a substantially increased physiological response so that effort associated with suppression made them look cool did not make them feel cool and it actually increased their blood pressure and other aspects of their cardiovascular response compared to either of the other two groups. So, su wow. so suppression, we're not saying you should never suppress, but suppression is pretty costly. So you gotta use it strategically. Now let's compare that to reappraisal. Reappraisal, which is this type of cognitive change. There, people were also able to engage this strategy, but there they not only looked cool, so when we coded the videotape records, we found that they showed less behavior than the people in the watch condition. They also reported feeling better. So unlike the suppression condition, where they looked cool and didn't feel any better at all, these people who were reappraising looked cool and felt cool. And mm -hmm. in a number of studies, now we've started to do brain imaging studies using functional magnetic resonance imaging. What we find is that people in a reappraisal condition there are now more than 100 neuroimaging studies, particularly uh, focused on reappraisal. We find that the way that people are able to look cool and feel cool is that they're turning down, using prefrontal cortical regions to turn down the activity in these emotion-generative regions of the brain. So it's a very deep process. If you really rethink what you're experiencing, that can really, really have a powerful emotional impact. Um, and so this has led people, I think, to be quite excited about the possibility that different strategies could have very different consequences. And, mm. and now people have done what's called meta-analyses. And that's just the idea that you, instead of doing one study at a time, if there are 
been enough studies, you can actually take all those studies and gather them together and ask if you look across all of the studies that have been done, let's say on the effects of suppression or reappraisal, across all of the studies, what do we find? And the findings that I've just described from our early studies from two decades ago seem to be very, very consistent with dozens and dozens of other studies that have been done. Now, Phil, I want to be clear that even though that study and now dozens and dozens of other studies suggest that reappraisal may be more powerful than suppression, that doesn't mean reappraisal always works or is always helpful. So just like we asked the question about whether emotions, not, not whether emotions are always helpful or harmful, but under what conditions or when are they helpful or harmful, same, yeah. thing, same thing here. So we need to ask the question, under what conditions are these forms of regulation helpful or harmful? And so uh, what we're finding is a nuanced picture, which is that in general, reappraisal and other strategies that come earlier in emotion generation are better than the response modulation. But that doesn't mean we always can use reappraisal. If we're in a situation that's brand new, that's overwhelming emotionally, we're not going to be able to rethink it. And so people, yeah. people just have to go to something else, let's say to an attentional strategy. So, Phil, that's a quick summary of some of our core findings. Uh, and I think the punchline here that's really important to me is that there are different strategies. There, there are very different ways to regulate our emotions and that some of them are going to be more effective for some people in some circumstances than others. So the smarter we can be about emotion regulation and its appropriate application, the more helpful we can be, not just to ourselves, but as you pointed out, to other people as we try to help them with their emotions as well. Now, I find that really interesting in the, the, you know, the, the, the effects, the physical health effects, the mental and relationship health effects that suppression versus other approaches can have. So that for me is something I really want you to think about for yourself, for your teams, your workplaces in terms of how... What, what is the either the overt or the covert, um, the explicit or implicit way that emotions are, it would appear as though emotions are to be regulated and managed within the workplaces that you work in or work with? And then thinking about the long-term effects that then has. You know, so we link back to SJ's findings on, on burnout. We go back to um, what both Joe and SJ talk and Cliff talk about in their episodes around the importance of having an opportunity to talk and share and explore and discuss and work with the feelings that we have in the workplace and the, the crucial role that that has yet is often lacking or, or not available to people. And I think what it, what I'm hoping, I guess what I'm, the, 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 the overall story arc, I suppose, that I'm, that I'm hoping to tell here is that emotions and emotional intelligence are incredibly complicated. They are, they are small words that mean an awful lot. And, and one of the terms that we haven't really explored yet is that emotional intelligence one. And, and it differs from emotions because emotions are discrete. That, you know, or, or emotional theory would, dis, would suggest that emotions are discrete things, where actually emotional intelligence is bringing in an awful lot of other areas together 
and can be more complex. So let's head over to our episode with Cliff, um, where I ask him then to define what emotional intelligence is. I've just said, is it the classic kind of two by two that we've talked about so far in in my narration for this episode? Um, and we'll we'll pick up the conversation there. Um, so we, we've talked about, um, and, we, and we didn't language it in this way, but we've talked about that self-awareness. I suppose, no, you did say self-awareness. So we talked about self-awareness. Um, and then we've also got, uh, in the classic kind of Goldman two by two grid, you've got the awareness, self-awareness, then um, self-management, and then awareness of others and, and other management, yes. for want of a better phrase. And, and, and I guess that's probably the most common model or framework around emotional intelligence. But one of the challenges I, I guess I have with that term, with that two by two and the term emotional intelligence in general, is it's those two words make up, and my listeners can't see how wide my arms are going, but those two words, emotional intelligence, make up this massive kind of um, variety and breadth and depth of, of stuff that's all been kind of pulled together in a, in a two by two. So. What, what's your working definition of emotional intelligence, if you have one? It's you've you you probably capture it with what you've just said there by describing the two by two grid. Uh, so whether it's um, uh, Jack Mayer or Peter Solove who did a lot of work with Crusoe on the Mesquite model, uh, which um, your listeners uh, may have heard of. So they worked hard on a, an ability model, and uh, they had the four branch model. Mm-hmm. And then you described uh, Daniel Goleman, who did uh, a lot of work publishing and making, um, uh, bringing this into the public arena around the two by two matrix of self awareness, self management, being aware of others, and managing the interaction with them. So, if you incorporate those four corners of that two by two grid into a sentence, you're not far off a definition that most people would accept. Yeah. However, many of the uh, definitions are um, uh, not comprehensive enough uh, because I know this is dear to your heart as well because uh, to judge competence whether you take the ability framework or the trait descriptors we can come to that later uh, if you're judging uh, the emotional intelligence of an individual then I would suggest that's impossible unless you can get to a decision on the appropriateness of their behaviour or thinking in context Mm. and with a goal. So unless you know their goal, if you've not got information about the context, uh, them, the other, uh, what's going on around them, uh, where they come from, their culture, their background and the other persons, unless you know uh, the intricacies of the micro context of the interaction that they're they're exchanging, um, having a discussion or a, a disagreement in, uh, and if you don't know the macro context about their values and beliefs and their culture and uh, from what they might be bringing to the table in their rucksack, uh, their invisible rucksack, then uh, if you've not got um, uh, any way of ascertaining uh, and bringing that into the table to judge whether someone is behaving appropriately, uh, you'd be guessing. Mm. So, uh, so that's what the challenge for assessing emotional intelligence is uh, first of all, you need a framework that respects culture and brings culture into play uh, in the fr- and uh, the wider issues, which we just call context. Nothing happens in a vacuum. Absolutely. And uh, context must feature. Now, unfortunately, uh, there are about six or seven 
popular models now with assessment tools around uh, for emotional intelligence. Um, many of them neglect uh, co- uh, the context. Yep. And mo- many of them also uh, don't uh, respect goals. What's the goal of the interaction? Mm. So my goal with you isn't always pro-social. If, yep. I'm, if I'm a poker player, I want to beat you. Mm. Uh, I don't care if you're hurting and you lose money. No, that would hurt. Uh, this, this That phrase would cause concern to some. Um, and therefore that brings another thing into uh, which is a problem for the models is uh, they're contaminated with uh, value-laden or uh, role-laden uh, aspects. So Daniel Goleman was uh, designed for leadership. Yeah. Uh, if, I, if, if, this is, if I want emotional intelligence for me and my wife, mm. then uh, there's no leadership there. We're equals. Uh, yeah. Well, I would say that's my wife, Ellen, <laughs> might say she's the boss. Um, but, um, but leadership is a contaminant. Uh, if we want a pure generic model, if we're striving for the equivalent of an IQ model, which is generic and widely applicable, then we need an EQ model, which has got uh, the same clarity. And even, uh, and this is not going to be popular, uh, is the even if the intent of the model is not pro-social and, and to do with well-being. I wanted to save that excerpt till last because it pulls, pulls together an awful lot of what we've started to explore already in this special edition. It talks about context and the importance and how that shapes lots and lots of different things. It talks about goals and how um, that is part of the context, but then those goals also shape what may or may not be helpful in a particular situation. And then finally brings in the aspect that that we hadn't really talked about yet, which is this pro-social view of emotions and emotional intelligence. And I think that's a, it's a risk if we just limit ourselves to think about emotions and emotional intelligence in that pro-social way. For us to ignore the ways that individuals approach what they do without thinking about the context, without thinking about their overall goals, without thinking about um, whether there is a pro-social or anti-social then uh, agenda that sits behind it is variables that I think are often overlooked and we need to bring into the the discussion and the exploration of emotions and emotional intelligence. Because humans do bad stuff and humans do silly stuff as well. And and, and the use of emotions and emotional intelligence, you know, in, in those antisocial ways are important. You know, in the workplace, we have issues with bullying. We have issues with grooming. We have issues with um, gaslighting. We have issues with um, people um, breaking the law in different ways. And if you are well-versed and you are emotionally intelligent your ability to use those skills in both a pro-social and an anti-social way, so whether you want to call it the dark side of emotional intelligence or whatever that is, I think we have to start to bring that into the discussion. We have to start to think about how do we, you know, how do we equip people to be able to work with their own and other people's emotions uh, in that way or in those ways when, when both Others around you may have pro-social, but they also may have anti-social agendas um, on there as well. Well, that was a positive and happy, not positive. Well, that was a happy note to end on, wasn't it? So um, let me pull it together then. There, 
there are lots of different variables, aspects and elements to emotions, whether that be what they are, how you regulate and work with them, how that man, how they manifest themselves in individuals, in relationships, in teams. And the purpose of this episode today was to to bring four different um, points of view on the world of emotions and emotional intelligence and bring them together with some wider commentary, I guess, from me about what I think that means for us as individuals, for people that, that work with others um, as human beings as a whole, I guess, in terms of emotions and emotional intelligence are really complex areas and we need to, I think, have a broader view, perspective and discussion on their role in individuals, in teams and the workplace as a whole. Thank you very much for listening to this special edition of the podcast. Um, we've not done one before, so it'd be good to know what you think. Um, you can either contact me at Phil Wilcox on Twitter, hello at emotionatwork.co.uk, or you can leave us a review on iTunes, Podbean, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks very much for listening, and I'll see you soon. You've been listening to the Emotion at Work podcast, written, edited, and presented by Phil Wilcox. For more information, why not visit our website, emotionatwork.co.uk. If you enjoyed the podcast, why not join the community at community.emotionatwork.co.uk, where you'll find other resources such as videos, blogs, articles, research, plus all the previous podcasts. It'd be great to hear from you. Thanks for listening.